Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my final conversation with Dr Ashton based upon his book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Over the last 12 programs, Dr Ashton has been explaining why scientific evidence makes evolution impossible. Today, Dr. Ashton will summarise the evidence before telling us why he is a Christian and something of his life and work. Dr. Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome, John. Hello, Barry. Good to be here again. During the last 12 conversations, you've presented forceful reasons why evolution is impossible. Taken together, these 12 reasons are compelling There are others, of course, but these 12 set up an absolute barrier to belief in evolution, don't they? Well, most certainly, Um, uh, and that's why the book was entitled Evolution Impossible. Impossible is an absolute term, and and I mean that absolutely. Um, Well, you know, I believe we, we now have overwhelming evidence that evolution never occurred. Would you like to summarise those 12 reasons for us? Yeah, sure. I think one of the things is that we now know that mutations do not produce new purposeful genetic information. They destroy existing codes that are there and sometimes during that process, by some chance reason, they they produce some minor change that happens to be a benefit. So, for example, they may knock out a a particular enzyme that is uh, producing a toxin, and so now that toxin isn't produced anymore, so uh, that now means that you have a a different organism that doesn't have the toxin and has different properties. Um, So these are the sort of changes that mutation produce. They don't produce new codes. The new codes to make a new type of organism are just so complex. Mutations are associated with an increased risk of disease and malfunction. Um, they, they don't produce new codes. They don't produce new types of animals. So we know that now. Um, and also the, the genetic code is just extremely complex. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a, imagining that some typing errors can, uh, can change the computer codes that, that generate a, a totally new type of uh, machine or something like that. We know that those sort of errors don't do that. The genetic code is just extremely complex. And so... To date, there's no known mechanism how the codes in DNA could form. Um, There's also actually, from a chemistry point of view, no known mechanism how the molecular structures of DNA could form in nature without the pre-existing molecular machinery to create them. So, you know, this is another main uh, major problem. There's no known mechanism how non-living molecules could form the first living cell, um, you know, despite all our, ex- all our experiments. And as we now understand the structures of, of cells, the component structures that are required uh, to have a viable uh, self-replicating life-giving process, those structures require millions 
and I literally mean millions of identical polymer molecules, none of which really form naturally in nature. So, uh, you know, the requirements for the first cell to, to form, again, are well and truly in the impossible um, region. And, of course, all experiments to generate uh, a living cell in the laboratory have, have failed. When we come to the fossil record, which is often cited, cited as the main evidence uh, for evolution, what we find are fully formed animals already there. When they first appear in the fossil record, they're fully formed, they're fully functioning. They're not in some transitional development, partly developed stage. We don't find the fossils of the uh, millions of um, transition species that there should have been there. We don't find the fossil evidence of all this very slow intermediate change that is required as these millions upon millions of mutations took effect. So again, the fossil record doesn't provide the evidence of these um, uh, mutations. The uh, oldest fossil bearing rocks have highly complex um, life forms in them, again, with no room for evolution. If we look at radiometric dating, we find that there are major inconsistencies. Depending on the radiometric dating scheme we use, we can get different answers for the same rocks. We can get one system, can give us rocks millions of years old, and yet we date carbon material in those rocks with carbon-14 dating and it'll only give us thousands of years old. So there's huge discrepancies there. Furthermore, the millions of years that the radiometric uh, dating ages give us is in, in massive conflict with erosion rate data that we have. So the continents are typically dated as two and a half to three billion years old. We know that they would erode away in less than 10 million years on the basis of accurate present-day erosion data. And we know that in the past, with higher rainfall, erosion would have been much higher. Uh, there's not enough ocean sediments or volcanic uh, deposits uh, for the surface of the earth to be as old as it's claimed to be. And furthermore, now, as we study mutations and we know, see that mutations are actually accumulating in the genome um, to the point that down the track there will be sufficient mutations that life will no longer function. If we extrapolate back, we know that life has to be less than 100,000 years old maximum and in realistically less than 10,000 years. So that's just a, a quick summary. So everywhere we look for evidence for evolution, um, it's, it, it's just not there, really. The evidence is there that it must have been created in a very, very short period of time. John, since your book was published in 2012, has anyone cited arguments or evidence from the scientific literature that refutes or at least raises significant questions about the validity of your conclusions? No, no, quite the contrary. Um, matter of fact, since my book has uh, been published, uh, other books have come out actually supporting the very material that I put out there. Um, for example, Thomas Nagel, um, he's an atheist, a very eminent uh, philosopher in the, uh, in the United States, uh, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of New York. Um, and shortly after my book was published, um, he uh, put out um, a, a book, uh, Mind and the Cosmos, why uh, the Darwinian paradigm must ultimately be proved false. And, and what is happening is actually more evidence is accumulating, uh, pointing out that evolution is absolutely impossible. The neo-Darwinian uh, uh, concept 
of uh, how life came to be just doesn't work. The evidence is just falling away. And even from the Big Bang aspects, uh, you know, the uh, more astronomers and astrophysicists are speaking out now and saying, look, you know, the, the Big Bang doesn't work. We still don't have an explanation for how the universe could form, how the stars and galaxies could form, um, the evidence for you know, dark matter and so forth, which is absolutely essential, uh, just hasn't been discovered. And, and we now know that, you know, that if it was real, that it would cause so many other observations and phenomena that we actually don't observe, that in actual fact we have the evidence that uh, dark matter can't exist or doesn't exist. And so everywhere we look, uh, the evidence is actually supporting what I've summarised in, in the book Evolution Impossible. Mm. Okay, tell us why you believe a super intelligent creator God is responsible for life on Earth. Well, when you think about it, we're here. We, we exist and, and, and the universe exists. And there must have been some first cause that was self-existing. But the other thing is, what is the explanation for the laws of physics and chemistry that constrain energy and matter, that constrain the structure of atoms and the subatomic particles, that actually constrain the fields, the energy fields like gravity, uh, uh, magnetism, uh, electric fields, all these amazing fields that exist? Um, what actually constrains these amazing well, forces that we observe um, and they all fit these very fascinating mathematical models and to me that requires a super intelligence from what we understand as intelligent. And the other thing is the, the realisation that our thoughts are non-material I think this is a very, very important aspect that we often don't contemplate, that our thoughts are non-material, but our thoughts can interact with the material world, as we, as we know, because our thoughts can move our hands <laughs> and uh, feet and so forth. So to me, the explanation for this is a super intelligent, spiritual, non-material mind or being uh, that is be behind all this. John, tell us about your life in science, uh, your university studies and your qualifications, your career in science, including your publications and your current work. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, I was very interested in science and I went to a very large uh, co-ed uh, state high school um, and I think from my very first science exam, uh, I topped both physics and chemistry. And I did continue to do that all, all the way through high school. And actually, when I think back before that, I, I can remember as a, a boy, I must have been less than eight, observing the shadow moving across tiles on our front patio and being fascinated by the fact that the shadow moved. And I can remember uh, studying ants and uh, picking, picking them up. Uh, and uh, and it took me a while to figure out that I wasn't being hurt by their bite. I was actually being hurt by their bottom, where their sting was. And so, the, you know, that was as a as a as a small child. So I guess I had this natural tendency to explore nature. 
When I began doing really well at school, um, one of the uh, the physics teacher actually gave me a book by, uh, I think it was Professor Harry Messel on science. And I, I used to enjoy reading science books. In fact, I used to read encyclopedias. I suffered very badly from asthma, so I actually missed a lot of school and spent a lot of time in bed. And uh, and, and I used to read. And... Um, but as a result, I, I did well at school. I was a straight A uh, student. I won a Lions Cup uh, scholarship in third year high school. Uh, I at the uh, end of um, when I did my leaving certificate, I won both a uh, Commonwealth University scholarship and a, a BHP cadetship in physics. And you know, I went to university. I was sixteen uh, years of age. Uh, my dad, as I, I don't know whether I mentioned earlier, he died when I was 13, about to uh, turn 14. So initially I went to uni part-time so that uh, I could provide some income for my mum and brother as well. Um, but uh, as I was studying, uh, I did uh, studied um, uh, physics, pure and applied mathematics and geology uh, and chemistry at uh, university, both majoring in uh, physics and mathematics. Uh, but then I noticed that most of the uh, physics students were ending up computer programmers. As a matter of fact, the fact that I had learned computer programming uh, where I was working at the time was at the BHP Central Research Laboratories. And of course, at that time, BHP was the largest steel maker in the Southern Hemisphere. And we had a, uh, an amazing uh, research team there. And they were ending up uh, being uh, computer program uh, computer programmers, as I said, and and I was taken off the interesting uh, physics uh, projects and put on computer programming, which I didn't like. So I decided to change to chemistry, and um, and I did my honours in chemistry, and indeed, and topped the university. So when you go into the University of Newcastle here, uh, my name's up on the on the honour roll there for for nineteen sixty nine. And I think I mentioned... So my, you're a university medalist in chemistry? Uh, it wasn't a medal at that stage. It was the uh, CS, uh, CSR Prize in Chemistry. So it was a cash prize, a prize. Okay. that was uh, given in, in chemistry at that time. Uh, and that was given to the top chemistry student at each university in Australia. So I won the one for Newcastle University. But I think I mentioned that at that time I was looking to, I, I was questioning um, about the purpose in life. And one of the reasons for this was when I started working at the BHP Research Laboratories, I was appointed the personal assistant of Dr. Neil Gray. And he had just arrived at the research uh, laboratories. At that time, there were only, when I first started, there were only two PhD qualified uh, people within BHP, the research director and the uh, deputy director of research. And Dr. Neil Gray arrived in February, March, 1964. And he was the first then um, a PhD scientist to arrive as part of a new research team they were setting up. Um, a high-level research team was being formed and I was fortunate to be chosen to be his personal assistant. And uh, later on, other scientists arrived that had trained at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Cambridge, London, Caltech, 
uh, all the top unis from around the world uh, to produce this really top team. But one of the things that I noticed was that Dr. Gray, um, he, he stood out as being quite different to the other scientists, many of the other scientists in that he's very friendly, didn't drink or smoke, um, he uh, didn't tell demeaning stories about women as some of the other folk did. And um, he, he witnessed to me. He loaned me the book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and he used to talk to me about a faith in God. And when I finished uni, I, I thought about, you know, what is the purpose in life? And uh, that was when you know, I spoke to my mother, who had been uh, raised uh, in the Church of England at the time, before they became the Anglican. And, the, um, and she suggested, will you go to church to find out about God? So I went to church, and that was when I first heard um, the gospel preached and our need to accept Jesus as our Saviour, that we had all fallen short um, of the of living in harmony with 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 God's laws and God's creation, um, but God was forgiving us um, through uh, through Jesus, um, and um, you know it's ex- explained about the the trap that Adam and Eve fell into, uh, that Satan had um, had laid was really a trap uh, for God. Really, um, this uh, and it, it's very interesting as I've read the Bible. It seems to be. Uh, um, an ongoing war between evil, forces of evil, uh, led by uh, Lucifer, who, who changed and became from a, from a perfect uh, loving being into a, into a hateful, jealous being, as Satan, and, uh, and then turned the tables on God. And so there was an interesting trap set uh, in that God, Satan accused God of being a liar, and Adam and Eve believed. And uh, so God was now in a in a tricky situation. If He forgave Adam and Eve and and let them uh, not die, then He would be accused of being a liar. And so I can see it was really a beautiful plan that God instead died to prove that He wasn't a liar, and now to have the ability to forgive everyone. And I, I think that's a a wonderful message that go, goes out there. And I, I heard that preached in in the church, and I realised that. I needed to accept Jesus and and accept that God as being the the Lord of my life and and, and surrendering to Him, and that and that was a, an amazing experience. It didn't happen just all at once. And I'd like to encourage those that are listening. It's not scary at all. It's sort of coming to know uh, in a personal way a wonderful, loving being that did create us. Um, as described in the Bible, and and who displayed himself as Jesus, as such a loving person. And it was over time that I came to realisations. But very early on, um, I prayed a prayer and uh, to God. My first prayer, and I guess it's a fairly simple sort of prayer and a naive sort of prayer, but I prayed God, uh, you know, I said that if uh, the Toxide Research Fellowship was advertised at the time, this was early 1970, and it was the highest paying postgraduate research scholarship offered in Australia. It probably offered 30% more in uh, its stipend than the uh, standard Commonwealth postgrad scholarship. I prayed to God if I got that scholarship, I would buy a Bible and start going to church regularly. Well, I won that scholarship. 
I was a 1970 recipient. So you had to keep your word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, I completed a uh, master's degree in chemistry in the area of titanium chemistry and then I took up a position uh, lecturing in physics and mathematics at the Hobart Technical College and I was responsible for uh, setting up a number of their courses like in the area of chemistry technician, um, uh, the medical uh, technology uh, courses, uh, the applied microbiology courses, courses in corrosion science. So I was responsible for drawing up the curriculum in these courses and setting up these courses. So after a few years, I was appointed state coordinator of the science courses for technical and further education in Tasmania. And um, I I was very successful down there. And uh, by this stage, I was married and had a family and um, we, you know, we were quite well off, but I became very unsettled um, in, uh, you know, um, I, I just, yeah, just wasn't sort of really happy, although life was going really well. And I um, was talking to a relative who was a lay preacher in the Baptist church, and he said, John, I think God is calling you. And, you know, when I thought about it, I thought I have a real desire to write in in the area of evidence for creation. Now, I guess how this came about was when I became a Christian, uh, which happened uh, happened a couple of years after I'd moved down to uh, Tasmania and was working at the university there. I um, people would ask me, okay, so you're a Christian, do you believe in creation? So that forced me to really look at the creation issue. Uh, which I did, and I began reading quite a bit in the area of creation, also in the area of the history behind the Bible, and particularly the area of prophecy. And I was looking for the independent historical uh, evidence supporting Bible prophecy, and I found there was a lot of evidence that supported the accuracy uh, of the uh, biblical prophecies and the genuineness of the biblical prophecies, and that was pretty impressive. And so... So I was studying and reading up privately in the two areas, evidence for creation and evidence for the historical accuracy. Now, your own background in um, physics, chemistry, maths, and um, also geology would have been enormously helpful to you at this point, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, It meant I had no problem in reading the the literature. uh, particularly with the applied maths that I did, which was a virtually equivalent to the uh, third level physics course, uh, they were very similar, and so I had yes, a very good understanding. Matter of fact, physics was my really in the area of science that was my first love, physics, and uh, I really really enjoy physics. So how did you move across to chemistry? Well, as I explained earlier, because most of the physicists weren't getting jobs in the area of physics, they were getting jobs as computer programmers because they were good at maths and computing. And, uh, you know, the employment area for physicists was not uh, real high. Matter of fact, when I was uh, teaching at the Hobart Technical College, there were two of us that were appointed at at the same time, and the other guy had a PhD in physics. So, <laughs> and he taught physics and maths classes, and I taught physics and maths classes because at that stage we there, there were no chemistry courses. Uh, but uh, when the head of school found out that yeah, you know, yes, I had a very strong 
physic, uh, chemistry background, then that's when uh, he decided, wow, we can expand the uh, offerings of the school to offer the uh, courses in, in chemistry training uh, for the chemistry technicians as well. Mm. So you're still now in the 1970s. Yeah, sure. How did your career progress? I mean, you've picked up Christianity along the way and you've picked up this interest in creation. Mm. How did it all start to work together through your career? Well, as I was saying to say, when I uh, became unsettled, I talked to my wife and we decided to move from Tasmania up to um, what we call the mainland, up to around the Sydney area somewhere because uh, my wife's family um, lived mainly in the Sydney area. That's where her parents were. And so we, we came up here and uh, we bought a, a house um, not far from Newcastle, uh, it turned out, and uh, a position came up uh, as chief chemist uh, at Sanitarium, uh, the Sanitarium uh, Health and Wellbeing, or Sanitarium Health Food Company as it was called back then, and so I took, took that position. And at that time, I decided to uh, go back to uni and read for a, a doctorate in the area of um, epistemology. Why epistemology? Because theories of knowledge, how we can know, it's really one of the fundamental issues that uh, underpin science as well. See, science uses reductionism to a very large extent to discover new things, but reductionism fails. Explain reductionism. Okay, reductionism is really, uh, was developed by... uh, Descartes, um, when uh, Rene Descartes, when he was uh, looking at how how we can know. So, so we're talking in the seventeenth century. Now, we're, aren't we? we're talking in the in the seventeenth uh, uh, century, and so he believed that God was a a mathematician, and therefore nature could be summarized, could be studied. If we divided nature down into tiny, weeny little bits and we studied all those little bits, then we should be able to mathematically reconstruct the uh, situation and therefore understand it. So that's the concept of reductionism, that you you specialise down and you study precisely one very, very small area. And of course, that's what science has done. We all have these very specialist scientists. And, of course, the power of reductionism was really developed by Newton, and Newton and Leibniz both at the same time developed calculus, which enabled them to then mathematically sum these tiny little bits. And, of course, Newton at the same time too identified the the laws of motion, which had a very powerful predictive effect. So you could predict the, uh, the motion of objects and this sort of thing because they were obeying these laws of motion. And so, uh, you know, New- Newton's book, I forget its name now, Principal, Principal Mechanica or, or something, um, you so know, Principia. Sol- Yes, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, his book went through numerous reprints very quickly and, and just took off throughout Europe because here now science was predicting outcomes. But when we get to biological systems, it doesn't work. And the reason is because of synergy. And I guess to explain synergy, let's say we've got a pile of railway sleepers that are very heavy. And, uh, and so the boss assigns a workman to go and move those railway sleepers. They've got to move from where they are to 20 metres away so they can be loaded on a truck. 
And so the guy goes along and he finds, oh, he can't carry a railway sleeper. So the only way he can move it is he's got to end for end it, end for end it. And so it takes him two minutes to move one railway sleeper over to where he's got to go. And the boss comes past and sees him doing that and says, oh, this is going to take too long. Joe, you go over there and help Fred. So Joe comes over and he starts end for ending too. And so with two of them working, they're still going to take two minutes to move, but you've got two people, so you're going to move twice as many. But then Joe and Fred look at one another and they say, hey, we might be able to carry this. And they reach down and they can just pick it up between the two of them and carry it across. But instead of taking it two minutes to get across now, it only takes them half a minute to get it across. But yet predicted putting two on it should be only two per minute, but now they're doing four per minute because the fact that two come in, it's not additive. It's now a synergistic effect. It's actually one plus one doesn't make two. One plus one now makes four. So that's the, the power of synergy and that can happen in biological systems. In other words, a slight change can produce a very different mechanism. Now, that's very difficult to predict by reductionist science. So my area of research looked at in the area of the biomedical sciences and environmental sciences, and essentially it was looking at ways we can predict outcomes. And in actual fact, I developed a, a holographic model for the interpretation of data. So uh, a hologram has some fascinating pro properties and really getting me <laughs> excited now. But That's good. <laughs> so we, <laughs> but we know that, and some people have seen holograms. If you can produce holograms with lasers and you'll get this three-dimensional image of light and you can have sort of like a person on a stage and they're not there but they're in three dimensions and you look around them and oh, they're amazingly realistic. And when you look at a holographic slide, say we've got a holographic slide of a swan on a pond, right? And... So if we had a normal film and you shone a little laser beam, just say through the section that was its beak on the photographic film, then up on the screen would just come that little picture of a beak. Right? But if you have a holographic slide of a swan on a pond and you just shine a little narrow laser beam on just a very small part of that... Uh, of that slide, you get a picture of the whole swan, not just a, a picture of its beak, because every part of the slide encodes information about the whole. And so my thesis was that every part of nature actually tells us something about the whole and how could we apply this? And in actual fact, this comes right down to DNA because every cell in our body contains the code for the whole of our body. So in actual fact, within nature itself, we find the, whole, find the holographic principle applied that there is information about the whole. And so what I did was I used that to be able to predict outcomes in environmental and health issues. And it was very powerful. And so then we would make the prediction and look for the outcome. And it was highly successful. Matter of fact, I, I think I, I wrote some more than 30 uh, articles, papers associated with my research during my PhD, plus a book. 
So that was, yeah, pro- you know. I, and where did you do that PhD? I did that at the University of Newcastle, and I did that under uh, a Professor Ron Lahr, who trained at Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge. Uh, so he was quite a cluey guy and very and very supportive of my work. And we actually published a, a number of, uh, of books together. But that was really exciting because really, uh, you know, I read articles where they say, oh, well, the intelligent design argument has no predictive power. Well, they should, you know, read some of the stuff that I've, I've published, including my book, The Perils of Progress, where in actual fact, I pointed out that if we assume there is intelligent design, we could avert many of the environmental and uh, health disasters that have occurred. If we can recognise that there's a purpose in the way things are structured within the environment. So, in fact, yeah, very powerful evidence, uh, in fact, in in nature for purposeful design uh, in nature itself. And that's a, you know, I could talk for for ages on that, but I guess we'll we'll get off the topic. Now, you had an interesting interesting creation. You've been reading. Hmm. You do your PhD Hmm. in epistemology. Hmm. um, And then... When did all of the writing begin, the public writing, the books and so forth, around the creation issue? Right, okay. Um, Well, I I was publishing uh, and writing a lot of books in the area of the environment um, and the impact of technology on the environment, uh, like uh, microwave radiation and... uh, uh, the uh, and, and different other areas, changes in our food composition, um, changes in the type of light our li- uh, eyes are exposed to. All these things can uh, can affect our health, and also um, in the uh, nutrition area. So I was writing books in in the area of that as well, and that uh, in part related to my work as chief chemist. Um, uh, and the research that we're doing in, in nutrition and at, at universities. But uh, it came to a point where I'd published a number of books, I think maybe six or seven books, uh, very successfully, and I decided now was the time, I felt now was the time, to actually write in the areas that I was really interested in. They were in the areas of evidence for the existence of God mm-hmm. and evidence for creation. So my okay. first book was called The Seventh Millennium, The Evidence We Can Know the Future, and that was published by New Holland. And that sold out relatively quickly. And that looked at the evidence down through history that people have seen the future ahead of time. Because that lies outside the mechanical paradigm that is adopted by most By the way, I got a copy of that book, but I bought it Mm. after In Six Days. Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) I didn't realize that it preceded it. Yes, it had had preceded that. And that provides powerful evidence that there must be a a non-material spiritual existence. Uh, there's so much uh, evidence out there, hard evidence, that um, for the existence of a, 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 a spiritual, uh, non-material um, reality. Mm. John, I'd like to pick up on that um, a little more as we uh, come back after the break. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible. 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has summarised the scientific evidence that makes evolution impossible. He's also told us about his early life in science and why he's a Christian and a creationist. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, John will tell us about the books he has written and why he continues to write while performing a very important role at Sanitarium. 
John will also tell us something of his early life and influences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has summarised the scientific evidence that makes evolution impossible. He's also told us about his early life in science and why he's a Christian and a creationist. Before the break, John was talking about his first book, The Seventh Millennium. As we go into the second part of the program, John is going to tell us more about the books that he has written. John, tell us about, a little more before we move on to the books, a little more about this non-material entity that you talked about in The Seventh Millennium, your your first book in this area. Okay, well, essentially... The Bible has prophecies uh, where God revealed to people what was going to happen ahead uh, for two reasons. So they know that God exists, that God is real. Uh, God claims he's the only one that, that knows the future and can reveal this. And it was also to provide encouragement to people, uh, particularly in difficult times, uh, particularly when there was persecution and this sort of thing, knowing that they would get through that. They would come through those times. So it gave the people hope. And so I was very interested to look at the um, secular historical records that both confirmed the uh, the biblical prophecies, and there are, I think there's over 700 uh, biblical uh, prophecies. Matter of fact, a scholar from Princeton uh, Seminary, uh, from the Seminary at Princeton, uh, has put together an encyclopedia of uh, biblical uh, prophecies. So there's a, a lot of data on this. But I was also interested just in the uh, secular accounts of uh, people seeing the future ahead of time, people being warned of uh, disasters. Um, you know, the classic one, of course, that we all, uh, most of us would know about is the dream that Julius Caesar's wife had uh, before uh, he was assassinated, where she pleaded with him not to go to the forum that day, that something bad was going to happen. And there's lots of um, there's lots of accounts like that. Uh, Princeton University actually did uh, research in this area as well in their space and aeronautics department. They were uh, very uh, interested um, and did some uh, experiments, what they call in the area of precognition, people seeing events uh, ahead of time. So I was very interested in this sort of research. Research and that um, and putting all the evidence uh, together, but uh, just shortly after that, there was a, a seminar on creation held at Macquarie University in Sydney, 
And at that uh, seminar, and I think I mentioned this in one of our earlier talks, mm-hmm. uh, the curator of the uh, Sydney Museum, um, after the presentation challenged, he didn't believe that any practising scientist with a PhD would believe in a literal six-day creation. So that led me to write to other uh, Christians uh, who uh, believed in the Bible and in creation and asked them as scientists um, if they would explain why they chose to believe in creation and um, and not evolution. And, of course, that became the book um, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. It was published by New Holland. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier there's, uh, there was a German edition, Italian edition, Portuguese edition. Uh, I think it has been translated into Romanian um, and Korean as well. And, of course, there's an American version uh, now that is, is still available and still selling very strongly on, on Amazon. I mentioned to you earlier, for example, yesterday it was uh, uh, number three in the top-selling books on creationism on Amazon. Is that your best-known book? In Six Days? In Six Days would probably be the best-known book in the scientific area. When the book In Six Days came out on evidence uh, for creation, Richard Dawkins, uh, Professor Richard Dawkins, uh, the um, uh, very outspoken evolutionist, uh, did a review of the book. Um, and people can Google. It's called Sadly an Honest Creationist. And um, he he asserts, well, you know, some of the people were trained at church-based universities. Well, that's um, only 10 of the 50 contributors were educated at a church-affiliated university. So um, I think that's a, a little bit unfair. But I decided to address that. So I decided to write again to academics around the world um, who believed and asked them why they uh, believed in the miracles of the Bible, the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ and answers to prayer. And this time I chose all academics that had been educated at secular universities and held uh, and taught at secular universities. And there were some outstanding academics that contributed, well, to both books actually. Um, and in, in many ways I think that book came out under the title The God Factor and uh, it has been reprinted a number of times, published by HarperCollins and uh, then by Strand Publishing and it currently is available in the US under the title On the Seventh Day um, because the um, the uh, US publisher, Master Books, they were publishing in six days so they, this they saw was a sequel so it was called On the Seventh Day. Um, so all these books that you've talked about, they're all available on Amazon? Oh, they're all available on Amazon and, and most of the popular book uh, uh, electronic bookshops, uh, I mean online bookstores like Booktopia, Book Depository, Kurong here in Australia, these sort of books, they're, they're all available. Um, so when that book came out, uh, I was contacted by a university student who had uh, read my books and he wanted to address some of the questions that university students face at university with regard to believing in God. And so we decided then to write to experts um, in the fields looking at a number of different things, such as um, evidence for the Exodus, 
um, archaeolo- or archaeological evidence for the Exodus, archaeological evidence for the Old Testament, archaeological evidence for the New Testament, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, look at philosophical questions, if God is good and all-powerful, why does he permit evil? Um, evidence for creation, why evolution was impossible, evidence for the flood, these sort of questions. And we wrote to uh, people who were uh, recognised expertise. For example, um, the the fellow that wrote on the archaeological evidence uh, for the accuracy of the New Testament um, taught uh, at the University of Chicago. I was an eminent professor there. So this was uh, the sort of calibre of people that we um, attracted to write articles for uh, the chapters in this book. And that book was uh, published uh, under the title The Big Argument, Does God Exist? So I went through several printings here in Australia and, uh, again, is currently available under Master Books uh, in the US under the title uh, The Big Argument, Does God Exist? Um, You've been busy. Yes. Following that, I was uh, when I was looking for someone uh, in the, looking for archaeological evidence uh, for the Exodus. Um, I met up with um, with uh, David Down, who had done a lot of work in Egypt. He he was a former army officer who had uh, become a church pastor, and then uh, taken a great deal of interest in Egyptian archaeology, and had spent uh, nearly 50 years travelling to Egypt and uh, working with archaeologists there. And he had put together from his findings and studies and uh, talking with the other archaeologists a a history of Egypt. And um, he uh, asked me if I'd uh, come in with him and help him... um, uh, finish it off and get it published and uh, one of the things that was missing was a timeline and so we worked on producing a timeline harmonising biblical chronology with Egyptian chronology and we found that we were able to establish some very strong links between events described in the Bible and events described in Egyptian history but the Egyptians didn't have a calendar as such or didn't have a uh, the, the dates for Egyptian events are, are very obscure and hard to identify and we found by using the Bible we could identify certain characteristic events in Egyptian history and then link them to the biblical chronology and find that they fitted and so that became the book Unwrapping the Pharaohs um, and uh, that is still selling very strongly well and I I think it's probably one of the first books that has been able to establish a chronology of Egypt that harmonises with the Bible on the basis of archaeological evidence and uh, while we may not have got everything 100% um, what we have put together works and um, uh, I think yes it's been an amazing uh, contribution there uh, then uh, following that, with the anniversary of uh, the sesquicentennial anniversary of Darwin's uh, book being published, um, that was in 2009, I became really strongly convicted that I really need to put out another book on why evolution is impossible. We had so much data now from the biochemistry point of view. And uh, so I worked on that uh, for over two years. Um, and that was published in 2012? Published in um, in uh, June or July 2012, yes, that's right. Hmm. And that's been out, so it's in second printing now, so it's gone well. So Is that the last book? 
that you've done? Uh, I have I have lots of ideas. It's just a matter it's of not, finding, in other words, finding it's not the, time. It's not the last book that you're going finding to write. Finding time, yeah. So another area that I'm passionate about is um, the impact that alcohol abuse has on cultures. Um, you know, alcohol abuse is impacting the lives just around the world. It's it's horrific. And uh, back in 2006, I published a book on this, Uncorked. Um, and that's co-authored by Ron Lara as well. Um, and uh, we had the uh, the book was endorsed uh, with a, a foreword by uh, Professor Hedda Yapeman at the University of Wollongong. And... Um, also, Professor Tony Worsley uh, from Deakin University uh, wrote um, uh, a support on the on the back cover too. They were amazed actually at the research there. Uh, and what uh, the book does is that it describes the impact that alcohol abuse has on society, uh, particularly the families and and young people and marriage. And the the book essentially summarises that we need duty of care. People need to take responsibility if they see someone who is looking to put themselves into a position of being no longer in control of their thoughts, um, in other words, getting drunk, that they need to do what they can to discourage that person from, from getting drunk and going that far. Um, I know a lot of young people now drinking to get drunk, and that is, that is very silly. And it really is something that there needs to be a massive campaign to discourage people from drinking to get drunk, because mm. when they do get drunk, they do things that most of them regret for the rest of their lives. It's very detrimental to health too, isn't it? Well, it is. And we now know that alcohol is a class one carcinogen. Very little is said about that. Um, It appears to damage the gamut cells, both male and female. Um, So it damages reproduction and offspring. There's a lot we could talk about there. But but that was an area that I was was very, um, very uh, passionate about. Thank you for telling us about your books. Hmm. We've got very little time left, but we need to know a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about your early life hmm. and influences. Just, yeah, just very sure. Okay. Um, well, uh, my parents were living at Stockton, a suburb of Newcastle where I was born, and we lived in a house directly opposite the uh, the beach in, in Mitchell Street there. Um, overlooking the beach so I have a natural affinity to love going to the beach and um, when I was eight my father built a, a new house um, at, uh, at Warners Bay and um, I went to the to local primary school uh, there and uh, he died when I was um, as I said 13 about nearly 14 and we were showed much kindness by some local Christians. It must have been pretty devastating mm. to lose your father at that point. Yes, it was very sudden. It was totally unexpected. He died of a of a heart attack. Um, I went off to school, and that was the last time I saw him. He died during the night, uh, the next morning, uh, while he was in hospital. And but it, it was a life changing experience in that some Christian folk who were nearby came and visited us and were very supportive of my mum because we didn't have any relatives close by, and we didn't regularly go to church, and I think their kindness um, 
certainly played an influence. They left a copy of a book called Your Bible and You, which explained the Bible. It was a picture book. And um, it had stories of answers to prayer of soldiers. It explained a little bit about prophecies and uh, what the Bible said and salvation and uh, the battle between good and evil. It made a lot of sense, really. And because it had pictures in it, for a boy, it was easy to read. Um, And... um, so, and as I said, there was the influence of uh, when I started work of uh, of Neil Gray, uh, Dr. Neil Gray, and I, I met him just recently and I found out, I think I mentioned earlier too, that he was a creationist and um, he, um, he went on to become a uh, professor at the University of Melbourne. And uh, my, the professor whom I studied under at uh, Newcastle, uh, he was a, a Christian and, and a, very, a very lovely man. He was, he was very uh, s- supportive. Um, when I was doing my honours, I would uh, – go- he, was, he was very approachable and I'd come in and he'd, uh, he'd say – to me, oh, come on in, John. Uh, you know, how's it going? Have you found a girlfriend yet? You know, he was, well, many professors are just so unapproachable, you know. Um, but he, he was very interested in, in people. And I, I think these people have, uh, these sort of people have certainly had uh, an effect in, in my life. I, I could see the difference between many people who were Christians, so who were really comfortable in their faith. They were happy people. They were joyful people. They were interested in other people. Um, they were helpful. And, and I, I guess that's moulded me. And I was attracted to that. I thought that is really good. When I read the Bible... And I, as I said, when I, I had that prayer answered, I won that scholarship. I went out and I bought a Bible and I started reading and I systematically read through it. And I checked things when it came to prophecies and it said something about Tyre. I would look it up in the encyclopedia and I'd find out what was the history of Tyre. And uh, because being a scientist, I work with data and I want good data. So I went to the best sources of data that I could and I looked it up. And, and back then as I checked through, everything I checked out, with the Bible made sense. Now, there were some difficult bits. There were uh, some bits that um, that uh, didn't add up um, to me, sort of if God is loving, how can you have eternal destruction and all this sort of thing. But then as I read into the meaning and the understanding of the words and how they were used at the time and the consistency in the Bible, I came to realise, well, from my perspective, my understanding of the Bible, there's no eternal hell. There's no burning in hellfire forever. There's destruction of the wicked at the end. But that's it because God then just creates everything new again. And the whole idea, as my understanding, is that God desired us to be living in paradise originally, Eden. I understand that's what the word Eden meant, meant paradise. And Satan, because he was jealous of God, came in and tricked Eve and uh, led her astray. God wanted to forgive Eve and, and Adam, but he couldn't because of the strategy that Satan has used. And there's been this conflict, uh, and Satan had been given free reign for so long to display, okay, this is what happens when people follow Satan. And we can see the chaos that the world is in at the present time. It's horrible, and we just see the chaos in our own society. But, you know, when my wife and I were first married, we lived in a little village where most of the people were Christians. We, we didn't even have lock. Well, we had locks on our doors, but we never locked them. We didn't even, when we had to sell, when we sold our house, we had to go and buy fresh locks because we had no keys. And people say it was a delightful experience 
to live in that village. There was no crime. People didn't steal. And I've been to other places in the United States where there are very uh, the people are strong churchgoers, believe in God, they help one another. You can see the difference in their faces to me. They're, and the, the crime rates are virtually non-existent in those little communities. It's only if somebody from outside comes in, you know. And having experienced that uh, to me um, and then having the peace of knowing that you can have salvation, it's just so empowering. And, and that's why I've written my books. And I know that creation has been a big issue for young people while they've been lo- losing their faith. And that is why I have felt so strongly those incorrect teachings that about evolution must be countered. Uh, there is powerful evidence for the existence of God. The creation story makes the most sense. We need to, the young people need to have that evidence, and that's why I was strongly motivated to write my books, and particularly Evolution Impossible. And um, yeah, it's been great having the time to be able to talk to you about this. Thank you so much, John. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversations as much as I have. It's been mm. really delightful talking right. with you over these last 13 hours. Oh, thanks, Ben. Best wishes. And I look forward to the next book, and I look forward to the next series of conversations with you at some stage in the future. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. This concludes my series of 13 conversations with Dr. Ashton. John has agreed to record further series around his books. Thank you for listening. I hope the conversations have been helpful and a blessing to you. This series will be repeated because lots of this material is very dense and uh, it bears being heard twice. Until then, bye for now and God bless you. Mm